Support for X-Ray FM comes from Portland Nursery. For over 100 years, Portland Nursery has provided Portland residents with a wide selection of healthy plants and expert gardening advice. Community-oriented and family-owned. Portland Nursery, a passion for plants, a nursery for plant people. Located on 50th and Stark and on 90th and Division. You are listening to KXRY Portland at 91.1 and 107.1 FM and KXRWLP Vancouver at 99.9 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. humor gotta find it what do bees use to style their hair honeycombs Hey friends, how's it going? Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to Grow PDX here on X-Ray FM. Grow PDX is a live call-in radio show and podcast focused on gardening, farming, community food systems, and more. You know, plants for people, pollinators, and the planet. And now we turn to the host of Grow PDX, Weston Miller of Oregon State University. Hi there, this is Weston Miller with OSU with digital producer Diana Suarez, and we're here on Grow PDX radio show and podcast, coming at you live each week on Wednesdays, 1 p.m. on X-Ray FM and on Facebook Live via The Oregonian. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be taking your questions at the end of the show, so please post them on Facebook at The Oregonian. Our guest today is Indoni Melithopoulos, who's an assistant professor of pollinator health in the Department of Horticulture at OSU. Indoni joins us here in the studio of X-Ray FM. Welcome, Indoni. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. And we'll get to know Andoni real soon here, but first we're going to celebrate our plant of the week, which happens to be the state flower of Oregon. Oh. It's Oregon grape. Yeah. Here is a bough of organ grape. It's got some spiky, spiky green yeah, leaves. Kind of like holly. Kind of like holly, a lot yeah. like holly, even spikier than holly. Mm-hmm. And it's also got these super cool electric yellow flowers. Yeah. And since we're talking about pollinators today, Andoni, tell us about organ grape as it relates to our pollinating friends. Oh my God, it's one of the best flowers in the early spring. Not only do bees visit it, uh, mason bees and all sorts of other bees, but uh, hummingbirds love it too. Hummingbirds, so a, a broad range of different pollinators. And say overall with organ grape, it's a great, great landscape plant. You've mm-hmm. probably seen a couple different varieties of it. There's a tall organ grape, which gets about five to eight feet tall. 
It makes a really pretty attractive evergreen hedge. And if you're looking to keep people out of an area because mm -hmm. it's so spiky, it does that pretty well. The tall organ grape spreads by rhizome, so it'll take over a space pretty nicely. There's also the, the dole organ grape. It gets about two feet tall by two feet wide. It doesn't really spread so much. You see that really commonly, especially in commercial landscapes all over mm -hmm. town in the rain gardens and other locations. Both of them are really great landscape plants for our area because they're native to our uh, to the Northwest, both to the wet parts of Western Oregon, but also into the drier parts of the mountains. And Native Americans and early settlers used this plant as both a food source and a medicine. The berries are certainly edible for people, but they're definitely gonna be a little bit on the sour side. Mm -hmm. And did you know that this is Native Plant Awareness Week? Oh. So we are celebrating our state plant, a native plant on Native Plant Awareness Week. Very good. I so like this it. is Oregon Grape. Please go out and get some. Um, I would consider buying not just one or two plants, but buying a group of them and putting them in a nice big cluster with, let's say, five to seven to nine or so plants. If you want to take up a lot of space, it's one of your best bets. How far apart should they be planted? You said cluster, but, you know, should they be like a foot apart, two feet apart? Great question. I would go ahead and put the plants probably about two feet apart. Got that would it. be a good spacing for a one-gallon plant that you can buy them. And one-gallon plant's going to cost you somewhere around $12 or so, mm -hmm. but ultimately it's going to take up a fair amount of landscape space, so cool. it's a good choice. Got it. You're with Grow PDX Radio Show and Podcast. I'm Weston Miller. We're joined by Andoni Melithopoulos, Diana Suarez, Who's joining us on Facebook today? Oh, today on Facebook, we have our friends Willis. And Willis has a couple questions for us. We'll get to those in a question. And then we also have Colleen. Thanks so much for joining us, joining us Colleen. We also got um, Elva, Larry, Karen, Laura, Gail, Scott, Gloria, Johnny, Willis again, and TC. Thanks so much, y'all, for joining us. And feel free to shoot us those questions. And I saw that will organ grape work in Tacoma? The answer is yes, absolutely. Great plant yeah. to put in Tacoma as well. Cool. Now to our guest, Andoni Melithopoulos, your pollinator health specialist for OSU. Tell us about your position. Well, um, you know, I came from Canada and the one thing I was really struck by is that um, Oregonians really care about pollinators. And what this position is designed to do is give some good, solid advice to Oregonians who are real busy on how to keep pollinators healthy in the state. Mm -hmm. Let's start with a basic question. What is a pollinator and why should we care about them? Well, a pollinator is some kind of critter, and usually it's an insect that is Critters, moving. yay! <laughs> yay, critters! Yeah. We love critters here. And it's if you look inside this Oregon grape or any flower, you'll see these filamentous bits. Uh, part of them are the male parts, and what the insect is doing, it's moving pollen from the male parts onto the sticky surface, uh, the female part, and that's how you set a seed. So it's all about mm. the birds and bees then. Literally. Literally. <laughs> there we yeah. go. Okay. And just we, we know there's like a pollinator crisis. We keep hearing that. What, does, what exactly does that mean? What's going on with them? You know, there's a bunch of different pollinators. There's monarch butterflies that are in trouble. Uh -huh. There's honeybees that a lot of be people hear about. Uh -huh. All pollinators, I think in general, like there's four things. Like obviously uh, every year pollinators go up and down just because it gets warm, it's hot, sure. it's a really wet, cool year. Uh -huh. That always happens. But then there is things like uh, the habitats changing. So uh -huh. they need flowers, they need places to nest, and those are decreasing as we change the landscape. Mm -hmm. But 
Also, in addition with all that, there are things like uh, pesticides that are being applied, and mm -hmm. all of these things together can account for, um, and also new diseases of the uh, these uh, pollinators. So all combined together, that is leading to increased losses. Got it. And that uh, the colony collapse disorder for honeybees is really well known, but it's generally the case for pollinators across the board that they're having a hard time these days. Yeah, some are, some aren't. There are some that you find in the city that are doing really well, and I think, but on a whole, we're seeing a lot, the diversity of pollinators we saw maybe 10, 20 years ago, it's starting to narrow. Mm. And Doni, OSU created your position to fill a mandate from the Oregon legislature to promote pollinator health. Um, why is it a big deal for the state to pay attention and promote pollinator health? It's so remarkable. I think Oregon's really ahead of the curve here. And remember I said this, this problem kind of mul has multiple parts to it. And I think unless Oregonians as a whole are engaged, the problem can't get solved. So having the legislature draw together a task force and kind of engage Oregonians on this, it really is the only way to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the solutions that are in the works? There's a lot of them. We're um, one of the Obviously, to be able to uh, engage this problem is going to mean putting real easy tools in front of lots of people uh, who are engaged. So farmers, for example, need uh, real specific guidelines on what to do to help pollinators, but also mm -hmm. in the cities. There are people, for example, in the landscape business that could be putting in more flowers or using pesticides better uh, to not affect the pollinators. I think all of those things are trying to get that education out to uh, out to the public. The farmers, landscapers, and really the general public as well. Um, if people garden or if they are, you know, um, if they have space that they're managing, they can actually do quite a bit to help manage pollinators and provide habitat for them. Definitely. Mm. And Dona, your work as a pollinator biologist sounds really interesting and challenging. How did you get started in this realm? What's the backstory here? You know, it's funny. I really love pollinator uh, uh, pollinator diversity. It's just, it's, there's more drama going on in the pollinator world than in any soap opera. I just having 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 that uh, just the general interest in that. But I also just love the people who are around pollinators, farmers, you, landscapers, people who work in nurseries. I love talking to them, and that's been a real hook. I think when you're in the pollinator business, you meet a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Thanks and for critters. listening. Go ahead, Diana. And, and critters. And critters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Grow PDX Radio Show and Podcast. I'm your host, Weston Miller, joined by Andoni Melithopoulos and Diana Suarez. We're talking about pollinator health. Andoni, I know people are familiar with honeybees and probably with bumblebees as well, yeah. but there's something like 3,500 or so native bees in North America. Help us to understand this diversity. Yeah, I mean, it's there's uh, there are uh, here in Oregon alone we have 500 species, and I bet you most people have never uh, noticed them. They're uh, some of them are really, as you said, are really visible things like bumblebees, but there are also these little dark black bees that comprise a whole lot of species. And what the reason why there's so many is that there's so many different flowers out there. They really, mm. as many flowers as there are, there are also these bees that either exclusively visit them or just like uh, uh, visit them en masse. Uh, uh, so the, the diversity is first driven by the flowering plants out there and then the diversity comes with all of the bees 
And as you mentioned, they're really they're there, but people aren't really paying attention to them. Oftentimes, the little tiny waspy ones are really small, mm-hmm. um, so you have to look closely to even see them. Definitely. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, bumblebee biology? Um, just like what the parts of a bee are, and how you know do they collect the pollen on their little legs and then come do some stuff? How do how does that work? Some basics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the real basic thing about bees uh, is that. Uh, bees are the only insect that in- rely entirely on flowers. They get everything they need from flowers. And so one of the big adaptations with a bee is it's very hairy, and their hair uh, is kind of designed to sort of suck in the pollen. Kind of like mm-hmm. Jedi's, they can levitate pollen and bring it onto their body. Mm-hmm. Nice. Kind of like flower, flowers that have those little, like, spring, you know, they look like little hairs also, but yeah. they're kind of like roots that are also gathering water from the air. It's, it's all about surface be, area is what yeah. it comes down to. Okay, got it. Cool. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Carry on. Sorry, so, yeah, Dendra. So <laughs> yeah. they, they carry this. They, they gather the pollen on their body, and then uh-huh. you can tell the different bees apart kind of like where they're carrying the pollen. So some uh-huh. bees, like the honeybees and the bumblebees, have this little basket on their back leg, and you can see them like fly through the air with this orange or yellow. The pollen's a different color on their back leg. But uh-huh. there's another bee that's out right now, uh, right across the city, uh, orchard mason bees, and they yeah. carry their pollen on their belly. Oh. Uh, well, they carry them in different places, and that's one way to tell them apart. Okay. While we're talking about mason bees, they are right at, uh, out right about now. I've released some at my home, and I see them cruising okay. and, and looking for new nests. Um, give us an idea about how folks can go about raising mason bees. It's really one of the most practical steps people can take to protect pollinators. Mason bees are pretty easy to rear. What what in nature what they're doing is they're finding some little above ground cavity, let's say a, a, a stem of a plant and they're making a nest in there, but you can get like straws, like little paper straws of the right diameter, 5 sixteenths of an inch. You can buy them at uh, a lot of garden stores and these bees will just come there at uh, this time of year, and they'll start to make a nest, kind of like a bird. They they huh. collect mud. They're mason bees, right? So they don't make wax like honeybees. They collect mud, and they make a little cell inside that straw. They collect the pollen, and they put it into a little loaf, and then they lay an egg. And then that's all the child care they do. They seal that thing up, and they're done. Not like honeybees. Yeah. They're like... Or like humans uh, <laughs> that are attached child to their <laughs> child forever. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now's a time yeah. when what you can do is put the tubes out and they'll come and colonize them and then they will go dormant for the summer and all the way through the fall and then next year they're going to emerge and they have a really pretty quick life cycle of just six weeks or so that oh, wow. they're out and about. You yeah. can also start it like Weston did by buying cocoons. So you can mm-hmm. buy, somebody's making a lot of these and you can buy the cocoons as a way to speed it up. Yeah. And they're really fun to watch. I just love <laughs> oh, watching yeah. the the mason bees because they're happy. They don't sting at all. They're not aggressive. Yeah. Okay. They're kind of size-wise a little bit bigger than the regular honeybee, a little bit uh-huh. darker in color, shiny. Cool. They're beautiful. Yeah, and is that one of the other solitary bees? I know there are a lot of other solitary bees that just nest in the ground. Is that another, the straw is a good way to, to get those hanging around your place? That's an excellent question. <laughs> there And there's, the thing is, if you look at the 500 or so species we have in Oregon, yeah. about 70% of them nest in the ground. So the okay. ones that nest in these straws are kind of a small group of them, uh, really one family of bees. Okay. But all the rest of them uh, nest in the ground. And I know um, 
you know, here in Portland, there's a uh-huh. lot. There's a school. It's Saban School Saban in Northeast school. Portland. Okay. Has these ground nesting wild bees that just like right on the the ball diamond. They kind of go in and out, and cool. it, for a short period of time, you see uh-huh. them, and then they pack their nest up and they're done underground. Got it. So they they also have a short lifespan, and they when when do the birds and bees, or when does the mating happen with these guys? Well, okay, so all of these bees are coming out staggered through the summer. So we ha- we're we hitting the spring bees right now. So the mason bees and these ground-nesting adrenids are happening right now. As soon as they pop out of the ground, usually first thing are the males. Males are cruising around waiting for the females to come out of the ground or their straws. They mate, uh, and then uh, you know they finish their life cycle maybe in five weeks. But there's going to be bees popping out all summer long. So some are going to come later in the year, these beautiful longhorn melisodes bees. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can I also just say my Go favorite fact about bees is that the male bees that are out wandering around waiting for the lady bees to do their thing, they like to take naps. They they will like fly around and collect pollen and travel long journeys and then sometimes they just need a little bee nap and they i've seen them rest on flowers and then get up and go on their way it's really cute i mean <laughs> not a bad life yeah <laughs> just that's popping from flower to flower and collecting the stuff from my from my hive that's kind of what i do too so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and cool. donnie while we're talking about native bees talk about the parasitoid wasps they're both pollinators and natural enemies yeah, parasitoid. Huh. Yeah, parasitoids are not parasites. So you think about like a tapeworm or something. It's some. It's something that you live with, and it kind of makes you, you know, you survive. A parasitoid is different in that it kills the host. Okay. And so there's all sorts of beneficial parasitoids that you, people you are doing pest management in your garden all year round. You probably don't even notice them. But one thing I will say is that the bees themselves have their own parasites. So you might see, for example, a mason bee that mm. comes out and it has, it looks like it has a little bit of mud on it, but they're actually mites. Yoinks. Yeah, that are grow, <laughs> and, and you know, that's part of the, the life cycle. Life cycle. Yeah. And normally, you know, a healthy population has some of them, but sometimes it can get out of control. And these mites, these parasites that honeybees have um, are really deadly. So they can, you know, these parasites are part of, um, a healthy system, but when they get out of whack, they can really uh, have a cause a lot of harm to pollinators. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the p- parasitoids, they're actually helping people in the garden because they're natural enemies. So they go and lay their eggs, for example, in aphids, and the the larvae hatch. They eat the aphid from the inside. They emerge, and then what's left is just an aphid mummy. And uh, all this is just happening right under your nose. And my understanding is that the relationships between the parasitoids and the insects that they lay their eggs in is really specific. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so the ones that are eating your aphids are not the ones that affect the bees. They're very tight relationships between parasitoids and their hosts. Mm -hmm. Cool. What about, so would like a barnacle on a whale be considered a type of parasitoid or is that just a parasite? I don't think it it causes any harm to the whale, so it's totally in different categories. Okay, cool. I had another question. I I forgot about it, but maybe it'll come anyway. Sorry, Weston, carry on. (laughs) And there's also leaf-cutting bees. Tell us about those. yeah. So in the eastern part of the state, there's another kind of bee, Mm. and it originates from Turkey originally. And it's this bee that is built like a little tank. And uh, if you look at an alfalfa plant, it springs every time it's pollinated. And honeybees don't like to get hit on the head. But these little tank bees are really good, and they make the alfalfa seed. And you need alfalfa, obviously, for things like sprouts. But uh, for cattle, it's like the source of protein for a lot of livestock. So these bees are connected to the food system in really remarkable ways. Mm -hmm. Awesome. 
We are talking about pollinator health with Andoni Melithopoulos here on Grow PDX. I'm Weston Miller. We'll be back in a minute. And right now, hi folks on Facebook. We're still with you, but X-Ray FM is taking a little bit of a break. X-Ray FM is supported by People's Food Co-op. Since 1970, People's has worked to offer responsibly sourced products at fair prices. Working with over 40 local farms to provide fresh, organic, farm-direct produce year-round. People's is collectively managed by community members throughout Portland. Located on Southeast 21st and Division, People's is open 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. More information about their location on 21st and Division at their weekly farmer's market every Wednesday from 2 to 7 p.m., and online at peoples.coop. every week just like andoni and yeah we're just so pleased to be here folks and thank you so much for listening consider becoming a member to support radio today awesome and we got someone chiming in on facebook thanking us for getting the word out about pollinator health yeah thanks so much friends cool are we back to x-ray we are back. all right yeah folks you're listening to grow pdx radio show and podcast we're talking with andoni melithopoulos here Andoni, what are some of the practices that people can do both in home and commercial landscapes that harm pollinators? So if we're trying mm. to protect them, what are the practices that harm them? Oh, I, you know, you, th- you have to think like a bee to begin with. A bee comes out of its nest and it's cruising around. If it doesn't find any flowers that are suitable for it, like I think, you know, th- uh, when Weston talked about planting the Oregon grape in a clump, really mm-hmm. great strategy. If you just have one flower out there, it's not going to attract the pollinators. It's the wrong type of flower. The other thing is, you know, when plants are in flower, bees are visiting them and you applying a pesticide to that flower is going to kill that bee. So you really want to be careful. You have to control your pests in your garden or in a in a cropping system, but you really want to be careful when the bees are there and there's high levels of exposure. And mm-hmm. overall, there are also some insecticides that are systemic that people can apply to the soil. They get into the pollen, and those are going to also be problematic for pollinators as well. Definitely. It's just because you're um, not spraying it direct on the flowers, if you're putting something like a so- uh, soil drench, and it contains some of these uh, systemic insecticides, it's going to get up to where the bees are visiting, even if it didn't land on the petal. Mm-hmm. And I'd say overall with landscape plants, I would encourage folks to learn how to tolerate the problems rather than resorting to using a pesticide because um, it really can have adverse effects. And, you know, with landscape plants, 
what's at stake really if there's a little bit of damage if it's really not doing well then that would probably be a good sign that that plant's not really that well suited to that particular environment mm-hmm. and i'm thinking specifically about the azalea lace bug these days mm-hmm. which is a new pest to our area people are uh, we love our azaleas it's a, a traditional plant that people have grown in oregon for a long time but it's becoming harder and harder to grow because of the azalea lace bug mm-hmm. knocking back the plants considerably and um it I'd say folks can avoid planting azaleas might be a a good tactic or planting some of the resistant varieties. And if you have that problem with your existing azaleas, either tolerate it or pull the plants out and start over with something new. Yeah. I will also say something that I like to apply to my life in general, set yourself up for success. Make sure you have good soil. Make sure you have all of the things that you're going to need. Make sure you're researching the plants that that you're putting in to make sure that you're going to Um, yield the best results out of what you got. It's all about right plant, right place, and right care. Lord. And Doni, there's information available to help folks reduce the risk of pesticides to pollinators. Oh, yeah. We've got this uh, publication that comes out of Oregon State University just as a plug, but it's also used nationally. It's an Mm. amazing publication. It's called How to Reduce uh, Poisoning to uh, uh, Pesticide Poisoning to Bees. We also have this really easy to use app. It's uh, you can go to iTunes or the Android uh, um, or, or Google Play and download it. Just the same uh, same title, uh, type it in, and uh, it just gives you all the information not only on honeybees but on all sorts of pollinators. Uh, and what's you can flip through it and try to figure out if you're looking at a having to control a pest, which one is the least toxic, and also which one will some some products just. Uh, last for a very long time. Some of the systemics that Weston was talking about uh, last for uh, months. And you really want, when you're wanting to protect pollen or something that's going to be there, control the pest and then disappear. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And this is information that it really brings together lots of different sources of information about pesticides and specifically how they might impact pollinators. And you really can't find that information anywhere else. Yeah. So for landscapers and for agriculturalists and even for home gardeners, it would be a useful starting place yeah. if you feel like you do need to do a pesticide application. Is there information about bugs that eat other bugs? Like, for instance, I know oh, ladybugs yeah. like aphids. So you could introduce ladybugs. And then you said introducing something that will then go away. Ladybugs tend to do that. Is there that kind of information in that guide? Not not in that one no. necessarily, but okay. there is other ones. I'd say um, farmscaping for beneficials would be a good source of information okay. mm-hmm. or um, the pocket guide of natural enemies in Oregon is also a really pretty cool little publication from OSU. Cool. The only thing I'd add to that, because that was a great suggestion, mm-hmm. is that a lot of the kind of things that you're going to do to protect pollinators are going to uh, attract a lot of these beneficial insects. So there's mm-hmm. a kind of like stacking together. If you do a mm-hmm. really good garden uh, for pollinators, you're going to get a lot of these beneficials just kind of, hey, because they need nectar as well and right. pollen. Yeah. yeah. Diana, do we have some questions from Facebook before we wrap um, things up here? Yeah, uh, we just want to thank Willis for being super into this talk about pollinators. Um, yeah, no, but I do want to say thank you to everybody who did join us, like Lori, Quinn, Pammy, Lee, Andrew, Nan, Katie, Malcolm, Helen, and Elva. Thanks so much, friends, for um, being with us on Facebook Live. And yeah, if you have any Thanks. questions, you can always let us know on Facebook. All right. Thank you, Diana and and Endoni. While we're still talking about pollinators, um, attracting them 
it's like build it and they will come if you put the right plants in the right location it's going to mm-hmm. help besides organ grape or plant of the week <laughs> what yeah. are some other plants that you recommend Oh, uh, you just in general, you want things that are going to go right across the season. So you want to plant a bunch of different things at the same time. I would say one of my favorite is uh, um, I'm going to say sunflowers for the summer because yeah. you can watch the bees. Uh, they'll spend a lot of time uh, on the flowers. So you can take nice pictures of them. <laughs> I would also add to that echinacea is mm-hmm. a really nice one. Um, Borage. I spend a lot of time working at home or pretending to work at home, but mostly looking out the window <laughs> and being out on the patio and in the garden That's watching work. the That's work. Weston, you're, you're observing your flock. It, I am, <laughs> and it's part of my job. So, yeah. um Anything in the mint family or things I would add to that list. Mm-hmm, so that would include mm-hmm. lavender, rosemary, sage, yeah. perovskia, bees balm, et cetera. Which is bee not balm. in that family, but... It is. Yeah. Oh, it is. Bee balm is absolutely yeah. in the mint family. And then I would also throw other native shrubs into the mix. Some of my favorites include western ninebark, mm-hmm. um, holodiscus discolor, or the... Um, Ocean spray, mm-hmm. red flower and currant, which we've celebrated on Grow mm-hmm. PDX recently, mm-hmm. are all some other landscape plants that are really also great at attracting beneficial insects. And then I would also just encourage people to plant them. And then, like I said, go outside and observe and see which flowers really seem to have the most activity mm-hmm. and then plant more of those and then tell your neighbors that these are the good ones to be planting. Yeah. And friends, I just want to say again one more time, if you liked what you heard today, give us a call 503-709-9535. Help support um, Weston and I as we bring more information to you about gardening and native plants and just how, how to how to be the most successful gardener you can here today in Portland. Thanks, Diana. And, and Donna, just give us a, a foreshadow. What is in store for your work in pollinator health with Oregon State? Oh, lots of publications will be coming out in the next year. We're going to be really uh, uh, producing some material for the home and garden sector uh, and a real revision of uh, looking over these pesticides and coming up with some really concrete suggestions. Awesome. I am glad you are on the job. Yeah. What inspires you the most about your work in protecting pollinators? I think people. I really love all the people who are connected to pollinators, uh, especially in this state. It really inspires me to talk to them and hear what they're doing. And thanks for coming on Grow PDX, where we're all about plants for people and pollinators and the planet. You've been listening to Grow PDX radio show and podcast.